You are listening to If Emmett Was Alive Today podcast with your host, Daphne and Priscilla J. Good afternoon. Um, I'm here with retired, or however they said, 27 years. Let me make sure I said it right. Retired Circuit Judge William C. Buell. Correct. I said it right? Yes. All right. Very good. Well, I appreciate you taking time out with me to sit down and have a chat about the criminal justice system and um, let's just get right in and so I'm gonna let you tell because I see you have a good bio here but I want you to tell me who you are and how you got started well I graduated in 1967 from law school okay uh, went to work for a lawyer till I passed the bar and two months after I passed the bar I was an assistant prosecutor mm -hmm. Nobody really wanted the job. It paid 4000 a year. It was part-time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that year, my prosecutor ran for judge because we created the district court that year. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, why don't you run for prosecutor? And nobody wanted that job because it only paid 13000 a year and it was supposed to be part-time. Mm -hmm. So I was a prosecuting attorney at the age of 26. Scares the bejibers out of me now <laughs> thinking <laughs> how, how lacking in experience. But I had a an intense uh, assistant prosecutor period. Okay. Uh, I was prosecutor till 74 when the judge retired and I was appointed district judge and served there for 14 years mm -hmm. and then uh, I got strong-armed into running for circuit judge when they created a second circuit judgeship and got elected in 89. Mm -hmm. I started in 89 as a circuit judge and spent 22 years as a circuit judge. Oh wow handle a lot of criminal. I probably sentenced 2,000, 3,000 people on felonies over okay. the years. Okay. So what state are you from, Judge? Where are you from? Michigan. Michigan. All right. Van Buren County. Okay. All right. So um, during that time, because you started out really young, and so during that time, um, I'm trying to think of the right question. What was it like when you were starting to, as a prosecuting attorney, coming into cases? Were most of your cases or all your cases that you felt, in your opinion, was able to be convicted? Or did you come across some that made you think twice about it? Oh, I early on discovered that people don't always tell the truth. Okay. Uh, the first thing you have to measure is whether you've got enough evidence. Okay. And I never took a case uh, and charged anybody unless I really felt I did. Okay. But very early on, I discovered that uh, we can make mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a case where an 11-year-old girl came in and claimed her father had, uh, had sex with her. Mm -hmm. And she had an older sister, two older sisters. And they had reported this at school. <coughs> the, the, elementary principal heard the story. He went to the uh, chief of police who heard the story. Uh, this is all bad protocol because today we have forensic interviews Absolutely. with these things. Absolutely. Uh, talk about advancements in science, you yeah. know, that that was one that uh, we really screwed up, but oh we didn't wow. know it. Mm -hmm. And then the detective from the state police interviewed the girl mm -hmm. and her sisters, okay. and they corroborated the story. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and then I compounded it. And I talked to the them. Mm -hmm. Stupidly, I talked to them together in the room. Mm. I was young. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Th it was 
made to sound like the father was very forceful guy and if he was around he would prevent them from even taking her for a physical setting she hadn't seen a doctor yet okay so we did an arrest warrant for him because my gosh all of us believe this girl mm -hmm. and he was arrested and put in jail and she went to the doctor and the doctor says uh-uh this girl no one has penetrated this girl oh, she's wow. very small for an 11 year old Ooh. we said whoops <laughs> so we immediately brought him over before the bench and asked him to be released on his own recognizance and he said, I didn't do this. I, I don't know what's wrong here. I'll take a polygraph. Set him up for the polygraph. So we took a polygraph. <coughs> I still remember the polygraph operator called me and said, well, Mr. Prosecutor, uh, not only do I find that he's truthful when he says uh, he didn't touch his daughter, he doesn't even cheat on his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that. Well, I'm sure the wife was happy. So. <laughs> Confronted with that, the girls fessed up. The 15-year-old sister wanted to date, and her mother said no. Her mother said, yeah, but her dad said no. And they could work mom, but they couldn't work dad. Mm -hmm. So let's get dad out of the picture so I can do what I want. Mm -hmm. That was her motive. And they concocted this story to take dad out of the way so she could have her way. You know, I couldn't wait to apologize to this guy and drop that charge. Wow. And, and then I thought, you know what's terrible is there's one circumstance where you will not get your fingerprints returned if a case is dismissed, mm -hmm. and that's a sex crime. Mm -hmm. So that will never go away on his history that he was charged with a life offense. Hmm. That really troubled me. So <coughs> what it taught me was we got to be kind of careful about this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and since that time, I sat on a preliminary examination in a case where a nine-year-old accused her father of sexually penetrating her with two fingers, and is a big burly truck driver. And uh, the proofs came in, the nine-year-old wasn't old enough to testify under oath, and that when they're that young, you talk to them to see if they know the difference between the truth and a lie mm -hmm. and see if they're mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. confident enough to give you information. So I talked to her and she was and she testified and two things happened during her testimony. Someone pointed out that her father was this big teddy bear of a guy with humongous hands mm -hmm. and that two fingers sounded pretty preposterous so she yeah. changed it to one finger. Oh, okay. That okay. didn't sound right. Mm -hmm. And then there was something else that she said that didn't sound right. Sound like she was kind of changing things to make them sound better. Mm -hmm. Then I discovered the people were divorced and the wife was just vicious towards this man. Oh, you swore at him, cussed at him. And the other thing that was unusual for an examination, and lawyers say don't testify at the exam, don't give them that opportunity, mm -hmm. he demanded to testify. Mm -hmm. He said, when they told me about this, I went down to the state police post. I waived my right to an attorney. I had nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong here. And I'm, I want it told. And he said, I never touched my daughter. I wouldn't do that. Uh, and I don't know what's going on. And, and I, I'm not angry with her. Something's going wrong here. She should be out selling Girl Scout cookies, not telling stories like this. Mm -hmm. He was so believable. And she had put questions in my mind ex-wife was so vindictive 
I said, I, I did what most district judges didn't do. Mm -hmm. They'll say, well, it's a fact question, leave it up to the jury. Mm -hmm. I said, no, my gut says this is wrong. I'm not binding this case over. Five years later, I talked to the lawyer that represented him <coughs> and I said, you remember that case? And he says, yeah, you know what happened? That girl turned 14, came to him and apologized and said, I'm sorry, Dad. You know, I realize how horrible that was that I did that, but Mom set that up. Mm. She told me to do that. And she mm. lives with Mom, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to say no to Mom? She said, I, I really feel bad about it. Boy, that opened my eyes. I mean, I always felt I did the right thing and I would have done it again, but I thought, uh, here's what's wrong with mandatory sentencing and removing judicial discretion. The law after that case changed so that that crime would require a mandatory minimum 25 years in prison, no judge's discretion. Got to do 25 to start. Mm. If I had bound that man over under that law, and the prosecutor recognizing, you know, she wasn't the greatest witness. Mm -hmm. I mean, that guy's pretty convincing. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, Mike, we'll give you a, a 15 year uh, sexual contact charge and, and recommend local time. Then you won't have to roll the dice on the 25. How do you like that? Would that man, innocent as he was, take that deal because he didn't want to risk a jury thinking, well, nine years old they don't make that stuff up right maybe maybe and the first thing I saw when that law was enacted is that is a horrible law because it gives the power to the prosecutor it changes the prosecutor from a prosecutor and a sentencing judge mm -hmm. he is really in the sentencing position now because people will take deals when they're faced with 25 minimum where the judge doesn't have any choice mm -hmm. so uh, wrongful convictions you see cases like that, you see laws like that that create situations that empower the prosecutor with such leverage that bad stuff happens. And it wasn't long after that that I had a woman prosecuted for reporting criminal sexual conduct. We did the forensic interview and by golly, it worked. And the forensic interviewer came back and said, this girl's telling a story. Mm. And they confronted that woman and she owned up to the fact that she set him up. Mm. Of course, she changed her story when they charged her and said, no, no, I didn't. But she got convicted by the jury anyway. Oh, wow. For so doing a report? Oh. Yeah, for doing a false report. Mm -hmm. Now, what should happen to somebody who gives a false report that would have put him in prison for 25 years? Mm -hmm. What should she get? Well, she'll never get it because nobody ever punishes anybody severely for that. Or, uh, I got criticized one time when I gave somebody 10 days in jail for a false report as a misdemeanor charge. Mm -hmm. uh, and domestic violence people criticized me and said, this county is unfriendly to victims of domestic violence. I said, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. This woman wasn't a domestic violence victim. Right. She was using the law to try to harm her boyfriend. Mm. So don't tell me I'm unfriendly to her. Right. I was frustrated by the situation with domestic violence where a woman would come in with both eyes swollen shut one day and it 
guy's charged, and then he apologizes, and next day she's in dropping the charges. You go, oh, please. <laughs> you know, so I, would the state have picked that up anyway, whether she dropped them? Uh, they do now. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the attitude has changed, mm -hmm. and, uh, but the problem is, mm -hmm. uh, the problem is that if that's your witness, mm -hmm. what's she gonna say when the trial comes? Right. And there was a time when they used to use the police report and there were hearsay exceptions they'd use uh -huh. to get evidence in despite the reluctant witness. Okay. Well, there was a case in the U.S. Supreme Court called mm -hmm. Crawford. And that case said, you can't do that. Okay. That when it's uh, hearsay and it's testimonial in nature, and they, they, they define that as when someone's actually accusing somebody of some wrong, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as distinguished to the a hearsay exception where you are watching and you see an accident and you say, man, that green car ran the, ran the red light. Yeah and then later on you're gone, they can't find you. They hmm. can introduce that as an excited utterance. Hmm. That, that's a hearsay statement, but it's an excited utterance. People don't usually make up excited utterances. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not accusatory. You, you're not the victim trying to accuse somebody of doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. You're just spontaneously describing what you saw. Right. That can come in because it's not called testimonial. Anyway, uh, wow. that's Law I'm, stuff, but I'm ready to get my law degree. This was all changing law, you know, yeah. that changed since I first started. Uh -huh. When you do it 52 years, a lot of things change. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Well, you just basically you you've given some good stuff on um, about wrongful convictions and, um, and and how you were faced with you know some things that did put you in a position to seriously and truthfully think about it versus because I'm judge, yeah, and I want to see you get in trouble, yeah, you know, or whatever the case may be. But you took it on your integrity of being honest and truthful as a judge. And was that you sharing the story about at the lunch table about spent, I can't remember what it was, but you said some things that eluded me to say I got to talk to this guy because he's he's a he has a good heart and 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 you were placed in a position to act out with integrity and not because of where you were able to say well no I'm gonna send you to prison or whatever the case may be you were able to to just break it down and save some lives from being ruined by something that was untrue yeah, I, I didn't like sending people to to me, prison was, there was no other option. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wanted to, I like to erase all options, and, and today there are more options than ever, and I wish they were there when I was there. We yeah. had the drug treatment court, for example. Mm -hmm. I only had it the last two and a half years. Yeah, yeah, that's and new. That's a wonderful option, and, mm -hmm. and there were people that very definitely would have gone to prison. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the first person that I had in my drug treatment court ended up working for my daughter in her ice cream shop <laughs> <laughs> and he came before me and his record was horrible wow and he had uh, in home invasions mm -hmm. and then he was sent to prison mm -hmm. and then he got out on parole okay. and while he was there something else happened mm -hmm. and he got some local time and he was on work release and was snorting oxycontin Ooh. almost fell and face first into the 
Stoll's where he worked at a restaurant. <coughs> so there he was in front of me for violating his probation and his parole. Mm-hmm. He had bulbs. Oh my God. And his agent looked at me and, and the sentencing guidelines were 29 months on the minimum. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, about two and a half years goodbye, Ben. And he walked in front of me and said, Judge, I heard about this drug treatment course you're starting. Mm. Oh, you have, yeah. And you know, I've studied it. And the recidivism rate for people in drug treatment court is 25% versus the recidivism rate for people who are not in drug treatment court is 60%. And he's spitting out these statistics. <laughs> Done his homework. He has no lawyer. Uh. And my, my agent and I have already concluded there's no choice with this guy. Uh-huh. And he said, and I think all of this is drug related. And he said, I'm ready to deal with that. Everything I've done was because I was high or wanted to get high. And I think I'd be a good candidate. So I looked at him. <laughs> I looked at him. Okay, we're back. We had some technical difficulties, and, and um, so we kind of want to pick back up, and we don't want to miss nothing from Judge because he has some amazing things to share. So let's kind of go back over with the drug court that you said. Yeah, let, let me start at the beginning with drug court because it's an interesting story. It is, and this and is based on Michigan law. This right? is Michigan law, yes. and of course drug courts are, every state has drug Absolutely. courts Absolutely, yes they do. But they all started, mm-hmm. I believe, in Pennsylvania or New York. Okay. Uh, but we had the first women's first drug court in Michigan was my neighboring county mm-hmm. and I never thought we needed drug court I thought we don't have that many people that would qualify mm-hmm. and we have a treatment court uh, treatment program in the jail mm-hmm. we don't need it we're, we're not good. big enough yeah well <laughs> I got drawn into a seminar where Judge Schmay who started the first one in Michigan spoke mm-hmm. and I thought wow <laughs> man this guy's got something going uh-huh. and I asked this lady at the health department let's follow up on this mm-hmm. And make a long story short, we got a grant. We went for training in Los Angeles. <coughs> we came back. We applied to the Department of Justice. And they gave us an offer of a $350,000 grant oh, wow. to start for three years. Oh, wow. And we went to the county board. And at the county board meeting, who shows up but our sheriff <laughs> and the head of the health department and fights it and convinces the county that they might be exposed to repay some money, and they denied it. Mm. Well, oh, we wow. gathered ourselves together and for the first time had all five judges agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll go to the county and say, if this is about money, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, we'll take it out of our budget hmm. if you have to repay us. Wow. And they said, oh, okay, and they approved it. Hmm. So we set it up. So we now we got drug treatment court and the very first candidate we had as we got started was a young man named Ben, who was destined to prison for sure. He had a whole history of home invasions. He was on mm-hmm. probation and parole, mm-hmm. and he used OxyContin on work release. Mm-hmm. And the agent said, we have no choice, and I agreed. And the minimum was 29 months, okay. 29 months to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, and so Ben comes in front of me and starts reciting all these facts about drug court and recidivism rates. Mm-hmm. and. I thought, where did that brain come from? <laughs> he this, did his homework. This guy's a smart young man. <laughs> uh-huh, He's uh-huh. really impressive. Mm-hmm. And he had no lawyer. Mm-hmm. And so the agent and I looked at each other and said, well, let's, let's go ahead and give him a chance. What are we going to lose? Mm-hmm. We're either going to send him to prison now or later if mm-hmm. he's giving us BS. Right, right. <coughs> ben went through without a single dirty drop. 13 months was 
one of our first three graduates never had a violation. Wow. And had such a conscience that he said to his uh, supervising agent, uh, do you think it would be unethical if I applied for a job at the judge's daughter's restaurant? <laughs> she had an ice cream shop restaurant. Uh-huh. I mean, he thought about ethics of it, didn't mm -hmm. want to offend anybody. Right. And he said, no, go ahead. I, they asked me. And one of the best employees she ever had. Oh, my God. He was so good that he was gone in a year or so because he went and got a better job. Oh, wow. But Ben was a absolutely guaranteed to go to prison without that option. Of that drug treatment program. Right. And then I saw many, many more like him. Mm. Some of them didn't make it. Some of them failed. Mm -hmm. Some of them returned. Mm -hmm. you, know, we, you know the business. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You can never predict. Yeah. But yeah. <coughs> just the, the idea that you're saving the state thousands and thousands of dollars. Absolutely. Now, you'd think the state would go, great, we'll fund your program. No. Mm -hmm. You know how that is. Yes. They're, as you say, they're cheap. Yeah. <laughs> They'll take all the benefits, but they ain't giving us the money to guarantee, you know, that we can continue. So mm -hmm. we had to have fundraisers and things like that. Yes, yes. It just drove me nuts. But since that time, mm -hmm. uh, it worked so well that now we got uh, a family court where people's kids are in jurisdiction of the court for neglect and abuse, usually mm -hmm. drugs. Uh-huh. And get them into that treatment court, they call it a different name, mm -hmm. and reunite the family. Mm -hmm. Then we started with a sobriety court on drunk drivers. Oh, wow. Where they could get their license back quicker. Mm -hmm. and then we got a mental health court, we call mm -hmm. it recovery court now. Okay. And boy, I wish I had that. Mm -hmm. And then we got a veterans court. Because yes. our poor veterans, mm -hmm. uh, and, you, and you know, this whole thing with mental health mm -hmm. just grieves me. So Michigan changed their system. Mm -hmm. Like everybody says, well, we're going to get rid of these institutions and treat them in the community mm -hmm. with no facilities or programs. The treatment facility now is a county jail oh, and wow. the state prison. Oh, wow. And, the, and you know, the, the correctional officers will tell you, we're not equipped to do this. Mm. We, we are dealing with the mental health issues here. Mm -hmm. We aren't trained. We know we aren't trained, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's so sad to watch, mm -hmm. and I don't know when we're going to fix it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of all over, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. every every state. <coughs> but mm -hmm. I would have loved to have those options mm -hmm. when I was on the bench. Mm -hmm. And since that time, I got retained by a man mm -hmm. uh, who was charged with stalking mm -hmm. while he was on probation for a misdemeanor stalking. Mm -hmm which means the minimum sentence on the felony, if it's probation, has to be a minimum of five years. Mm -hmm. And he was so obsessed, he'd, he'd uh, split from his wife, and she was 51% of the problem. Oh, wow. But he was so obsessed that mm -hmm. he would text her, mm -hmm. and, and he got charged for stalking again because he texted her 500 times Jeez. in two days. <laughs> Does that sound like stalking? <laughs> <laughs> That's the definition. <laughs> yeah, just put his picture. Wow. So I thought this guy, in my mind, from mm -hmm. my experience, is a murder-suicide su coming. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the kind of guy that will go in and kill his family himself. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, we've got to address that. Right. And I convinced the prosecutor to mm -hmm. offer him this. Mm -hmm. Plead him to the felony. Mm -hmm. Put him in recovery court. 
takes a little over a year to complete. Yeah. And if he successfully completes it, dump the felony, give him a misdemeanor. Mm. Keep a felony off his record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he, he succeeded. Oh, wow. He got through. Mm -hmm. He succeeded. Mm -hmm. He finally broke the tie with that wife because mm -hmm. they were poison to each other. They were other. not good for each other, yeah. And had that recovery court not been available, mm -hmm. I couldn't have done that. Right. But it addressed the problem. It yes. was a mental health problem. Yes, yes. And it kept him out of prison, mm -hmm. kept him out of jail. Yeah. He didn't have to do and jail. No doubt saved a life. So, and probably saved a life because mm -hmm. uh, how many times do you see those things mm -hmm. where people get so emotionally wrought mm -hmm. that they think the only thing to do is to take everybody out mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. makes no sense to us. Right, right, But right. you see it coming. So... Uh, I love the specialty court. Yeah. I really yeah, do. And I think they, yeah. they ought to be funded centrally by mm -hmm. the state to make sure that every county, mm -hmm. poor or rich, yeah. has yeah. it. Has that opportunity. And has that opportunity. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Wow, this is um this is just so incredible. I'm I'm just I'm just kinda overwhelmed with so many phenomenal people that I'm bumping into and getting the opportunity to talk to. That's a neat conference, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and I'm so glad, well, God always have a way of doing things. But, um, so we, we've tapped on pretty much, so we were talking about um, science and evidence. You, was, you had mentioned about that. I think that's something we can tell our audience about science and evidence within the criminal courts. It's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we discussed, you know, that uh, arson investigation, mm -hmm. uh, there were certain things, certain Bibles on what, what proves what, mm -hmm. and uh, which has proven to be incorrect. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Michigan, we had a man who spent almost 20 years in prison, or 20 years, because he was convicted of murder, burning his house down and killing his family. Mm -hmm. And the house did burn down, the family was killed, but mm -hmm. it turns out that the scientific evidence that said it was arson was off. Hmm. And uh, his conviction was set aside. It, I think it was an in innocence project out of the University mm -hmm. of Michigan, mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. alma mater. Oh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> and th I, I think that, uh, that that was one example of uh -huh. science changing uh -huh. and uh -huh. DNA is another big example we yes. all know these exonerations from DNA testing mm -hmm. and, uh, we mentioned Grisham's book the innocent man mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> just a horrific story about a, a, a guy who had mental, mental illness mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. who was wrongfully convicted and spent a decade on death row okay uh, and, and imagine being there mm -hmm. on death row facing uh, execution mm -hmm when you didn't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and DNA was uh, was a centerpiece, I think, of exonerating him. Mm -hmm. and, and it's disturbed me that there are so many. I mean, we know we're gonna get it wrong sometimes. Mm -hmm. I am blessed to yes. be in the state of Michigan yes. where we don't have the death penalty. Oh, okay. And I always wondered how I would deal with it because I have come become firmly a believer that the death penalty is wrong. Okay. And How so, Judge? How so? Well, I think it's morally wrong. Okay. I, I just, as a Christian, I don't think 
we have the right to do that. Okay. I mean, if we believe there's always room for redemption, mm -hmm. well, I'm going to shorten yours mm -hmm. because you took somebody's life. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess just morally, what I used to think is I was on the fence. Mm -hmm. You know, ah, one way or the other, we don't have it, so I don't have to decide. Right, right, right. right then right. I asked myself one day, if someone said, Buell, go in there and pull the lever on that electric chair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you are talking to somebody else. I'm not pulling any lever. Uh -huh. If I can't pull the lever, how can I sit in a system where I say somebody else, you pull the lever? Right. What's the difference? Right. I, c I can't do that. So I thought, you know, I don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking of it just in moral terms. If you want to look at it economically and just talk about money, which drives everybody, mm -hmm. it costs more. It costs more to have it than to not have it. It doesn't prevent recidivism. That's mm -hmm. been established. Mm -hmm. People don't say, you know, I think I'll go to Michigan and commit this murder <laughs> because they don't execute you there. Mm -hmm. uh -uh. Mm -hmm. People don't think that way. So right. it doesn't prevent people, it isn't, it isn't a deterrent to crime, mm -hmm. it doesn't stop murders, right. and it takes more money to keep people on death row and then execute them than mm -hmm. it would be if you just gave them a life sentence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And part of it is all the appeals. And people say, well, we'll fix that. We'll take away some of these appellate rights. <laughs> we don't <laughs> want people having all that ability to litigate. Right. Oh, you're going to sh uh, short shrift due process. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine said to me one time, mm -hmm. well, by golly, when the proof's absolute, and you got somebody on video or something like that, that mm -hmm. we ought to have a rule that you execute them in three days. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll take care of the problem. I said, well, who's going to decide when it's absolutely true? Uh -huh. Well, what about Squeaky Fromm, you know, trying to kill uh, President Ford? Mm -hmm. I said, Squeaky Fromm, I think she's out now. Mm -hmm. Uh, th there's always a story behind things, you mm -hmm. know. One lawyer, I love this guy, <laughs> he came in and says, Judge, after the prosecutor tells his story, he says, it's sort of like the cook in the lumberjack camps. He says, uh, no matter how thin you pour them, flapjacks always have two sides. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but it's true. Uh -huh. And I have heard cases you know, you can't help this. You're human. You're mm -hmm. a judge. You're mm -hmm. hearing the story. The plaintiff or the prosecutor gets up and they tell their story. And you're sitting there thinking, why are we wasting our time? This is a <laughs> slam dunk, you know? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh -huh. what, why, why is this guy asking for a trial? Then he gets on the stand, tells his story, and you go, oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> There's something to decide here. This uh -huh. isn't so black and white after all. Right, right. And I've had that happen to me so many times. Mm -hmm. the, the problem with the human being <coughs> is that some have an ability to keep that mind open and some don't. Mm -hmm. And I know you've seen people yes. who don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. Mm -hmm. they, they are not open to anything new. And, and once they take a position, they can't get off it. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate. I think I inherited it from my parents, and my mm -hmm. father in particular mm -hmm. was a wonderful listener. Yes. And he always wanted to hear the other side, and he was curious. Mm -hmm. He was a Presbyterian, but 
he loved to hear about the Roman Catholics. And he'd <laughs> read a book about them just because uh -huh. he was curious. Curious, yeah. He said to me one day, son, don't ever judge another man's religion. Mm -hmm. You never know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I thought that so many times. He was talking about a Christian scientist who went blind and uh, regained his sight. Okay. He said, who knows? Don't, don't judge others' religion. Uh -huh. So I, I think that helped me formulate how I did things and how it allowed me to be fair on the bench because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was never over till all the evidence was in and the yeah. arguments were made. Mm -hmm. and I go in and hear on a motion, you know, we get these big fat briefs with all these exhibits and motion for summary disposition. And I'd look at them and read them over and form an opinion. I think the plaintiff's going to win this one. I'm going to rule for him. Mm -hmm. I get in there and they make their arguments. Darn it. <laughs> now I don't know. Oh goodness. <laughs> I, darn it. I don't. You guys, now I got to take this under advisement and I got to write an opinion cuz uh -huh. I like to rule from the bench. Get it over with. Mm -hmm. Now you know where you stand. Yeah. Maybe you can settle it. Right. Uh, and the lawyers like that. They like walking out knowing where they stood. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while they would argue so brilliantly their position that I would go, "Whoa, maybe Maybe not. Uh -huh. So I, then I'd have to struggle with oh, it. Oh, wow. Know? So I, it, was, it was good and it was bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was good because I was trying to get the right result, mm -hmm. but it made more work. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to take those things home. And uh, How long will it take you? Oh, I made deadlines in, in two weeks. I tried not to go beyond. Okay. Uh, one of the things I hate about the system uh, is I had a client who, who went to get his license restored and uh, those hearing officers in our state never decide while you're there. Mm -hmm. And so they write an opinion. Six months we waited, six months. Wow. I never did that to anybody. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> th we have a system where we have to report things that are uh, under advisement so long. Mm -hmm. And I took great pride in the fact that I never had to report one of those. Wow. But they were overly generous. Mm -hmm. Like the old rule used to be every four months you have to report anything that's on your docket that hasn't been decided in 120 days. Mm -hmm. Well, you could go 110 days mm -hmm. and you wouldn't have to report it, and then you could wait another 110 days mm -hmm. and decide it, and mm -hmm. you'd never have to report it. Hey, you're talking about four or five months. Mm -hmm. uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Then they shortened the rule up to 56 days, <laughs> and I, one screw up. <laughs> oh, wow. I went on vacation the day <laughs> somebody sent something in, mm -hmm. and it didn't it was called a motion for reconsideration. The other side doesn't have the right to respond. You've ruled already against them. Mm -hmm. They file a motion for reconsideration, and that motion has to be filed within 21 days mm -hmm. or 14. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, when I got back from vacation, mm -hmm. it was three weeks. It was a, in my pile, and by the time I saw it, it was 57 days. Ooh. <laughs> So I had to report that as undecided within 56 days. Oh, you're a day late. <laughs> and, and the new rule was it didn't matter whether it was when you reported it, it had been 56 days. Mm -hmm. It's during any quarter, anything that took over 56 days had to be reported. So it was a oh, much wow. tighter rule. Mm -hmm. But I deplored that under advisement stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it put a burden on me in it made me glad to retire at 68 because 
uh, my caseload kept growing. I can imagine. And if you're going to rule from the bench, you got to read those briefs. Yeah. And sometimes you have two or three of those a week. Mm. And so I had to take them home. Mm -hmm. And you didn't read them till the last minute because lawyers would call up four days before and say, we've settled it. Mm. So I just spent four hours reading those briefs. Right, right. <laughs> Dang, why did I bother doing that so far ahead? Uh -huh. So, you know, that uh, I was burdened by my own policy. Mm. And then it, the lawyers got to expect that some judges don't read those briefs. Really? And they'll go in there and sit there like they're listening and give it to the law clerk <laughs> about plaintiff loses. Yeah. You know, or <coughs> they'll have their law clerk write the opinions and everything. I could never do that. I never had a law clerk as a district judge, so it took me a long time to realize, oh, mm -hmm. I'm a law clerk. Mm -hmm. And I like to write my own stuff. Right. So I would go in there and, and my reputation got to be the judge rules from the bench and he has read your brief mm. and so the lawyer would got he'd get in there and start out well judge I know you've read the briefs because you do that and we know that <laughs> and once in a while I got into a pinch where I hadn't quite done that mm -hmm. and I said, okay <laughs> and I, I'm trying to at least know enough to disclose that I know a little bit about it so it sounds like I read it uh -huh. and then sometimes <laughs> I might have to take another advisement I thought you know you, you did this to yourself right right and if you didn't have that reputation they wouldn't presume it but, mm -hmm. but it's a good reputation absolutely you don't want to lose it you know absolutely uh, it, it was uh, I was my own slave driver yeah, <laughs> yeah. So when did you retire? How long ago? Uh, 2010. 2010. Yeah. Okay. So my I'm, last year. I'm doing the math on your age. I'm like. Six or 77 I am. Oh, really? 68 when I retired. Well, audience, if you could see this man, you wouldn't believe that he was 77. 77, yeah. Wow. September. Yeah. So you just yeah. had a birthday. I did. Yeah. yeah. But we're going to take a real short break, and we're going to come back and kind of bring this thing to closure. But we have just totally enjoyed Judge Buell. I said it right? That's right. Oh, yeah, yes. I said her name right. Okay, and we'll be back with If Emmett Was Alive Today podcast, so we'll be right back. Okay, hello, everybody. So we are back with um, Daphne Jack, our host. Of if Emmy was alive today, I'm Alexandria. I am the owner of Alex and Co Communication. We're just doing a. Um, we had to cut our session with the judge slightly short. We had some other things coming up, and he had so much good things to say during his interview. I hate that we didn't get everything, um, and a lot of it was done off script and off um, off the uh, mic. And so, but we'll, what we'll do instead is follow up from, um, from Judge Buell's interview and then just ask host Daphne some questions about some of the things that she talked about. Um, so, hello, Daphne. Hi. How are you, Alex? I'm doing great. That's um, good. So, just give us some thoughts on your interview well, both interviews that you had, we also did another interview mm -hmm. with um, Christopher Scott. So let's start off with just recapping from the judge some things that you learned and um, some things that people need to, it, once, once they replay the interview, something that uh, you would like to share of your best moments, I guess. Um, with 
Judge Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he he was able to share as much as he could. As Alex stated earlier, we had to cut it short because we had just been there, I guess, just kind of speechless with the conversation. And, and he had so much knowledge, although he was from Michigan, um, talking about the laws in Michigan. But pretty much when it came down to wrongful conviction, you know, he he was the judge that appeared to be extremely fair. He took the story and and was able to analyze the stories that or with the with the cases that he was presented with um, in reference to wrongful conviction and was able to um, give people back their lives by not um, convicting them because of false allegations that came against them. And he was able to um, get those cases thrown out by with the alleged victim um, recanting the story or finding out that they were mad at their um, accuser and and wanted to get them back and felt like that was the way to get them back. And then the other case was where the mother was upset and kind of coerced the victim to go ahead and, and, and say some um, untruths about her accuser alleged accuser and so therefore with the judge standing for fairness and and standing for what was right he was able to not convict wrongfully convict those um, persons involved and was able to allow people to get back to their lives and I thought that was very good it was a good conversation with him and and um, just you know again um, hate we didn't get a chance to finish up the conversation but what he did share with us was very very good information yeah it was extremely good information and um the stories that he did tell it just allowed even though he's from a different um state it does show that wrongful wrongful conviction is a universal issue it's Mm -hmm. not a race thing it's not a um a state thing or a city thing it's purely universal um so moving forward um just to recap from your interview uh with christopher scott mm-hmm. um give us some things for us to listen out for on the christopher scott interview okay yeah the christopher scott in the interview was extremely good we um heard a different story you know with the same same topic wrongful conviction and you know different story different person but the the overall deal was that you know he was wrongfully convicted and and to hear his story talking about how he was the youngest one in his family i believe it was nine i believe it was i think it was nine but anyway mm-hmm. they had a large family grew up on the um um South Oak Cliff, if I said it right. He grew up in South Dallas. Yeah, it was South South Dallas, and as as people that live in Dallas, Oak Oak Cliff is 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 the neighborhood, so to speak. And um, so he just talked about how they grew up, you know, typical family, and and um, and and how he wanted to make a difference by moving out of the community and trying to do the right things, and was able to get employment as a manager with his brother and lo and behold as he was going about 
trying to do the right thing, got caught up in the system, being wrongfully convicted for a crime that he did not commit. And he spent 13 years in prison until, um, I guess, a random act of God, or would, would, do I even need to say it's a random act of God, but just God revealing himself by allowing um, one of the his, right thing to happen. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The right thing to happen for, for his behalf. Mm -hmm. And and so, like I stated, he he spent 13 years in prison and was able to get out. And and um, and now he's out helping other people. And he has an amazing um, nonprofit. It's called House of Renewed Hope. And so that's how I was able to locate him. And, and really amazing person. And I'm just so honored to have made myself acquainted with him. And we also talked about the Second, um, Second Chance Act that needs to be um, amended or rewritten on behalf of the exonerees. They, they state something in what they have, but um, it's, it's not saying that, yes, we are helping the exonerees once they are released. And so he and I had talked about that, and of course I'm uh, incorporating Mr. An Anthony Graves, and we all have a chance to hopefully so have a conference call and sit down and talk about um, how we can change that bill so that, or that act so that we can start assisting the um, people who are ex exonerated. Okay, so as we heard, we did have two very successful and very informative um, podcast interviews mm -hmm. on this trip to Dallas. Um, can you tell us why we were in Dallas? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, we were. started out with that. Fine. Yeah, that's okay. Well, it's kind of, you know, summing it up, but we, um, I was, I was um, able to, I submitted, I was invited to submit a proposal for a presentation about um, reentry, um, me being a retired parole officer and everything. So I put this proposal together and submitted it and, and I was selected to be a presenter at the um, um, Family Prison International Conference. And um, it was held in Dallas, Texas. And so um, that Thursday I was able to um, do my presentation and it was very successful and I was just very honored and the response from the people was amazing and and so that happened that Thursday and um, the prison presentation again was for the prison family um, conference and so my present presentation title was um, Let's see, now what? Surviving reentry. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, you know, I just gave steps to successfully reintegrating back into society from a parole officer's perspective. As we know, that reentry is becoming quite popular now because of, you know, seeing the changes and the things that needed to be changed to help people who was formerly incarcerated. And so um, on my end of the deal with Prevention Zone, Inc., my nonprofit, we want to um, provide reentry for the um, exonerees, uh, returning citizens who are exonerated. And so, but, but that was basically 
the um, gist of the of the um, conference, but I did attend one workshop by um, an amazing professor from Texas Tech, Waco. She's a criminal justice um, instructor there, and and she presented her presentation about women in prison, and so um, and she kicked it off really kind of mind-boggling. It, it shouldn't have been, but it is, because the fact that we know that when it, when it comes to crime and criminal justice, we always have that stigma that African-Americans are picked out to be picked on all the time. And so she was able to do a presentation about women in prison. And her first, her first slide and discussion, she gave us statistics of, of about 12,500 women who had been incarcerated, or who were, who are incarcerated, I should say, and she stated that she gave that 50% of the women were white women, and then 26% were African American, and 21% Hispanic, and the other percent was for the other race, and so um, she really talked about and brought out some really good information about women who are being incarcerated. And so, um, as I stated, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I learned a lot and met some amazing people. So I would do it again. Yeah, um, yeah your, your presentation was extremely um, informative and engaging. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people had a lot to say before and after you got started. Um, we got some really good reviews on the presentation as well as um, a lot of um, response mm -hmm. from the people. A lot of people had a lot of questions because it is something extremely um, needed to be talked about when it comes to um, people reintegrating back into society mm -hmm. and everything. And so um, I guess, did you have any remarks or any final remarks? To our little quick interview um no um i just you know i want to give homage to you for being able to attend the conference and and i see why they kind of started traveling two or more people when doing the conferences because it's really kind of hard for the presenter who is there by themselves to just kind of do everything do everything yeah and you were able to get some pictures and and mm -hmm. do a little recording so um i want to appreciate you for going although you did go for relaxation but um, um but i hey, did it, end up going for <laughs> unpaid work uh-huh exactly um, exactly however uh, however yeah um, it was it was really good to go to kind of see because as many of you know i uh Daphne is my mom as well as my client and so it did give me some extra portions of experience to um, try to kind of curate what I'm trying to do with my business because now that I've graduated from U of H um, I'm just wanting to revamp my um, my business as well as or my PR firm as mm -hmm. well as um, bring on some new clients Absolutely. and some uh, some different things to do and eventually start doing a, a few pieces of hiring. But ultimately, 
this allowed us to, um, Alex and Co, to um, explore the speakers branch of, um, of the firm and to see kind of where I want to take that as well. Um, mm -hmm. First, we started out with the podcast and then we did a speaking gig um, and then just some other little things here and there. And so um, just be continuously looking out and watching out for some new things that you might have. Um, again, this is the um, If Emmett Was Alive Today podcast and my name is Alexandria. Mm -hmm. um, my podcast, if anybody wants to um, know more about PR, food, I'm a huge foodie, you can uh, subscribe. Um, I'm on all platforms to the Dinner Party Podcast. And um, if anybody wants to get in touch with Daphne, Daphne, where could they find you? They can go to Prevention Zone Inc. at gmail.com. Again, Prevention Zone Inc. at gmail.com. That's where you can reach me. Or, of course, my social medias, um, Prevention Zone Inc. on Facebook and um, Ink Prevention on Twitter. And um, you know, on Instagram is Prevention Zone Inc. on Instagram. And that's how you can find me. Okay, and if anybody um, is looking for any PR help or communications help, customer service help, um, you can get in touch with me. My name is Alexandria Jack. On Instagram, it is I am Alex Jack. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. And then for my podcast, it is the Dinner Party Podcast, available on pretty much all platforms. And also, um, also uh, the Dinner Party with Alex at gmail.com. All right. All right. Okay. Well, thanks, thanks again for joining us um, on If Emma Was Alive today podcast and you guys have a, a great day you've been listening to if emmett was alive today podcast with your host daphne jack i hope you have enjoyed it and if you would like to get in contact with me please go to www dot daphinebjack.com again www.daphinebjack as in brown jack j a c k dot com and if you would like to reach out to my nonprofit you can go to our website www.preventionzoneinc.org Again, www.preventionzoneinc.org. And don't forget to check out our other episodes. And we look forward to bringing you again, If Emmett Was Alive Today podcast.